0: you're listening to the Avenue Church podcast. Our desire is that this message will inspire you to encounter Jesus and find a better way to do life. For more info and to connect with us, visit us online at theavenuechurch.com. Thanks for listening. We've been doing a series called Family Portrait. And if this is your first time back, or you're watching online, we've been going through some family issues. And today, I want to talk about something that I think is so important for families, and it's what I call leaving a legacy. You saw in, in the clip all the antique pictures, all the old pictures, and all of you have those pictures somewhere in your house. Either your mother has them or your grandmother has them, and if you ever look through those old pictures, they tell you who these people are. Now, you have no idea who they are. You have no clue, And when the generation passes, you have a picture somewhere and you look at it and they are as foreign to you, but you know that that is your great, great or your great grandfather. Or maybe even your grandfather is at a point that you don't remember who he was. But I want you to know those old snapshots are part of who you are. Now, in our culture, we really see the family as mom, dad, and kids. But this is the first time in culture that that's happened. Most of the time... Families stayed together for a long period, and grandparents and great-grandparents were all in that small family unit, and they grew from each other and learned from each other, and they had very tight relationships. And so I want you to know, even though you have your own family, you are who you are because of your parents. But your parents are who they are because of their parents, who who they are because of their parents. Everything we do affects the generations to come, and this may be frightening to some of you. You are affecting your future family right now. The choices you make, the actions in your life, your attitudes and things that you do today are going to be played out in your family in generations to come. And one day, you're gonna be that digital hologram or or whatever. You're gonna be that digital picture that they see and nobody knows and they're gonna say, well, this is your great-grandfather. He was what kind of man? This is your great, great grandmother. She was, and that's what we're leaving behind. That's what a legacy is. I want to show you an example in the Bible of how important it is to leave a legacy to those that are following us and how it shapes our lives. So hold on, because we're going to go through about 60 years in the Bible, about two-thirds of Genesis. We're going to tell stories that many of you have heard before, but if you haven't heard it, you'll be fine. I'll keep you up to date. I'll tell the story in a way that you can comprehend it. But we're going to go through these stories and I want to tie them together in a way you may not have realized. We're going to start with the most famous family. His name was Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, when they were old, God came to them and said, leave your family and the land and the houses that you have, and I'm going to take you to a place and I'm going to show you a new thing. I'm going to take you and I'm going to do something with you. In fact, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as all the sand on all the beaches. Now, for 80 and 90-year-old people, this sounded ridiculous. But God is a God of miracles. And so in their old age, they had a child named Isaac. And Isaac is the one that this promise has been given to. And this is where we see the nation of Israel start to form. And so you have Abraham and he had Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah gave birth to twins. Their names were Esau and Jacob. Now, in this culture, the firstborn has some rights. In this culture, the firstborn has what's called a birthright, which means two-thirds of all the property is given to that child. So Esau, being the oldest by minutes, gets all the property Abraham has left to Isaac, And he is due all that property. He's going to be a very wealthy man from the beginning of his life. He's also giving a blessing. A blessing is where it is passed down the head of the home, the head of the house. Remember, all of them stayed together in a large group. And so Esau was going to be the patriarch. He was going to be the one that the line flowed through. And he was going to be the one that directed the family in the future. That's important. And so we see Esau and Jacob. We have a young man named Jacob who is called a cheater, a supplanter. Because all of his life he wants what his brother has. And we'll see that story play out in a minute. Jacob goes off to a land, he lives with an uncle, and for twenty years he works, and he has two wives. And that's Jacob is four times. It's not four kids named Jacob. That's I mean, I know George Foreman did that, but that, that's not what he did. It's one guy. But he's married to four different, well, he's married to two, and two are concubines. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Bible, God always wanted marriage to be one man, one woman, but he did not approve of multiple marriages. But of course, grace abounds, just like it does for us. So there are four women who give him children. And you see in this, he has 12 boys, 12 sons. So he is very well blessed. Now, the problem with Jacob is Jacob has a favorite child. Now, it's easy for Jacob to have a favorite child because you know what? He was the favorite child of his mother. His father had a favorite child. His father's favorite child was Esau. His mother's favorite child was Jacob. Jacob continued that tradition and decided that the, his favorite wife, Rachel, who he worked 14 years for his uncle so he could marry her, I mean, pretty big commitment. So anyway, 14 years to marry her, he, she gave birth to a son, one of the youngest, These other women were giving birth to all these children. It was incredible, and poor Rachel was not. She finally gave birth to a son, and they named him Joseph. And Joseph was so loved by his dad. His dad favored him. He loved all his children, but he favored this one above them all. And he didn't make any bones about it. When all the other boys had to go off to work, Joseph did not. In fact, he honored Joseph by providing him what they call a coat of many colors. Now, in this culture, any coloring was very expensive. It was hard, you know, they wore camel skin and, you know, nothing but brown, you know? And so all of a sudden, Joseph is presented with this coat that makes him stand out among everyone. Anybody that sees Joseph in this coat knows that he's the favorite. Now, Joseph doesn't play this card too well because he knows he's the favorite. In fact, he has dreams that he tells his, his brothers about One of his dreams, he says, hey, man, I had a dream the other night and you all bowed down to me. Now, how'd you like your little brother to tell you that? One day, you're gonna bow down to me. If my little brother had told me that, he'd have been bowed permanently. (laughs) Well, that's how they felt when this little snot-nosed, spoiled, favorite kid shows up and tells them, oh, I had a dream. And so they didn't like this boy. Well, it so happens that All the brothers are out working the fields, working the sheep, taking care of of all the things that they had to take care of. And, And Jacob tells Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers. What he meant is go spy on your brothers. He didn't have to be out there in the field working. He got to stay up in the house. And so he said, go spy on your brothers, make sure they're doing their job and come back and give me a report. So the brothers are out there in the hot sun, working, doing what they're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, the favored son starts walking up in a coat of many colors. And they see him in the distance, and you think, that little snot. He's coming in that coat to show off, and he's just going to be a tattletale. So one of the brothers said, you know what? <clears throat> I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I don't want to put up with it anymore. Let's kill him. Wasn't figurative. He meant it. He was done. He was tired. All the brothers got together and thought, that's not a bad idea. One of the brothers said, wait, wait, let's do not be too hasty. And so they took him. They grabbed him. They took that coat off of him, and they threw him in a pit, in a a well. He couldn't get out. Just threw him in there. You know that had to be frightening for him. Then they began to discuss what they were going to do, and they decided what they were going to do is they were going to dip that robe in blood and go back and tell their dad that some wild animal must have got your son, because they didn't want him there anymore. Well, then they looked, and one of the brothers decided, "Let's, let's don't kill him. They saw a traveling band of men who were slave traders. And they thought, let's don't kill him. We can get some money out of him. So let's sell him. So here is Joseph in this well. He's hurt. He's tired. He's in shock. And the brothers start pulling him out. And they think, oh, oh, that was a horrible practical joke. Never do anything like that again. And then all of a sudden, they tied his hands and feet, and they sold him to the slave traders going down to Egypt. Can you imagine what that walk was for Joseph? Betrayed by his own family set out to be a slave for the rest of his life. He goes down to Egypt and a wealthy man buys him and brings him into his home as a slave. And Joseph decides at this moment, and this blows my mind, Joseph decides that even though it appears that God has forsaken him, he's gonna stay true to his God. Even though it looks like God is not with him because he's going through a trial, he's going through this trouble, he says, I'm gonna be faithful to my God. And so Potiphar, the, the man who bought him, put him in charge of all these things and everything Joseph touched flourished in an incredible way. I mean, he was incredibly intelligent and God was with him in ways that he may not have realized. So everything he touched was blessed and all of a sudden, Potiphar began to look at him and go, man, this guy needs to be in charge of my finances. He's gonna pay the bills. He's gonna run the other slaves. He's gonna take care of my house. This is great, guy's great. So he lifts him up and he's in charge of the entire house. Well, apparently he's a strapping, young, good-looking man, or Potiphar's wife was one of those kind of women. What are they called? Cougars? Whatever they are. (laughs) So she took an interest in him, and she began to pursue him. But he, because of his relationship with her husband, and more than that, his relationship with his God, refused her advances. Well, she was a desperate woman. And apparently she wasn't used to being told no. So the Bible tells us that one day she grabs him and he has to come out of his robe and become the first streaker, recorded streaker. He runs out of the house and she has the robe in his hands. When she was coming onto him, he said, how could I do this? My master has given me control of everything except you. You're the only thing he has withheld and my God would be dishonored. And he runs out of there. She holds the robe. Well, she's a scorned woman. She is angry. Her husband comes home and she takes the robe to him and says, your servant tried to rape me. To which Potiphar is completely out of his mind, angry and throws him in prison. And this is a prison that he is going to stay in for the rest of his life. But even in this prison, he stays faithful to God don't miss that. In this trial, in this tribulation, when most of us would have thrown our hands up and said, God, why me? Joseph continued to be faithful. The prison warden caught the, he caught the attention of the prison warden. And once again, everything he touched flourished. And so pretty soon, Joseph was in charge of the prison because he was blessed in everything that he did. As he was in charge of the prison, he became known as a man who could interpret dreams well, one day, two of the king's servants are thrown into jail because the king is displeased. One is the cupbearer, which is a horrible job. Tastes the food, and if it's poisoned, the king knows not to eat it. But if it's not poisoned, it's a pretty good gig. And so he got in trouble. He was put in jail, along with the baker. I don't know the baker burnt the bread. I don't know what he did wrong. The baker's put in jail. And so they have this dream, and somebody says, hey, Joseph, the warden's number one guy, he can interpret dreams. So the cupbearer goes to him and says, I had a dream. And he tells him the dream, and Joseph says, yes, I can tell you, the meaning of that dream is in three days, you're going to be restored to your rightful place. So the baker thinks, ha, that's great. And so he tells him his dream. And Joseph goes, yep, in three days, your head's going to be removed from your body. Not quite the report he wanted. Three days later, the baker, the uh, wine cup, the cup taster, is restored. As the wine taster' is being taken out, Joseph says, "Hey, remember me. You have the ear of the king. Remember me. Do me a favor." Well, the cupbearer goes back to his business, doesn't think about it, doesn't worry about it. Two years passes. And the Pharaoh has a troubling dream, actually, too. In his dream, there are seven fat cows by the Nile River eating grass. All of a sudden, seven very skinny cows come out of the river. They eat the fat cows, but they stay lean. He has the same dream with wheat. And so he gets all of his advisors and all of his magicians together, says, what is the meaning of this dream? And none of them can tell him. So the cupbearer goes, hey, I remember there was a guy in prison, And he interpreted our dreams and he was exactly right. Remember the baker you killed? He was, he probably didn't say that. He said he was exactly right. So they called for Joseph. Joseph comes and he says something incredible. The Pharaoh says, you can interpret dreams. And once again, this man who seems to be forsaken, betrayed by his family, is God with him? He doesn't appear so. But Joseph looks at him and says, I can't, but my God can. So he interprets the dream and he says, For seven years, there's going to be plenty, more than we can have, more than we can eat. But then there's going to be seven years of famine that are so severe, that are so severe, we're going to forget the seven years of plenty. So Pharaoh was so impressed he said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put you in charge of collecting the grain and putting it back so we have food when everything gets bad. And so he puts him in charge. Everything he does, once again, does what? Is blessed by God. It starts multiplying, and the Pharaoh is so impressed, he makes him the prime minister of Egypt. He's in charge of all the food distribution when things get tough. And so here he is, a slave who's risen up to the top ranks in the Egyptian hierarchy. Back in his hometown, Things are getting tough. The famine's not just in Egypt, it's all over. And so Jacob and his family get to the point that they're starving and they don't know what to do. They've heard reports that there's food in Egypt. So Jacob gets the boys together and says, listen, we're gonna die. There's about 70 of them. He says, we're gonna die. You've got to get us some food. Go down into Egypt. And here we have them heading to Egypt to try to buy food to save their family. Guess who's in charge of food distribution, remember? Joseph. Joseph. The one they mocked, the one they ridiculed, the one they threw into a pit and wanted to kill, the one they sold into slavery. As soon as the brothers appear before him, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He's dressed like an Egyptian, they have their heads bowed before him. Can you imagine what Joseph is feeling at this moment? Can you imagine the anger? Here's his chance to get even with these brothers. Here's his opportunity. But before we see what he does with that opportunity, I want to take you back to his family legacy. His family legacy back with Jacob and Esau. See, Jacob and Esau, once again, Jacob wanted everything that Esau had. And one day he got his chance It says, Esau came in from the wilderness and apparently he was hunting. He'd found nothing to eat for many, many days. He was starving, not like you're starving right now and thinking about lunch. He was truly starving to death. He stumbles in and Jacob is cooking a big pot of stew. Tells his brother, man, I need something to eat. I'm starving to death. And his brother flippantly says, give me your birthright and I'll give you something to eat. And his brother said, man, what the birthright, not gonna do me any good. If I die, give me something to eat. He gives him his birthright. It says that Esau despised his birthright. He didn't understand it. He didn't comprehend what he was doing. So he gave Jacob the birthright. So he's got part of it. What's left is the blessing. Remember I told you that Rebecca's favorite child was Jacob. Jacob stayed in the, house, stayed in the tent, read books with her, hung out. Esau was the wilderness out in the hunting. So as Isaac is dying... Rebecca comes up with a plan. You've got the birthright, now you need the blessing. So she helps him disguise himself as Esau. And he goes in front of his father, who's blind as can be. He touches his arm and feels the hairy arm. He smells the clothing. He still is confused. He thinks the voice is Jacob's, but he gives him the blessing. Now, words are so important that once he spoke this blessing, he could not take it back. So he gave this blessing to Jacob. Jacob becomes the head of the family where the line is gonna flow through. He's got the birthright already. Esau comes in and asks for a blessing. His dad says, I've already given it. Well, give me something. He goes, there's nothing I can do. Esau comes out of that meeting and he says, he says, I, he held a grudge against Jacob. Because of the blessing his father had given him, he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. My father's about to die. After my father dies, I will kill Jacob. Do you blame me? So Rebecca goes to so Jacob says, you got to get out of here. You got to run. Your brother is going to kill you. That's why Jacob runs. That's why Jacob is in this foreign land with his mother's brother. This is why he's working for 20 years away from his inheritance, away from his family, because Esau has swore to kill him. So these boys are growing up. Joseph is growing up with the brothers. He hears the stories of why they live in this land instead of where their father is from, because you always follow the father's line. Why are we with your mother's family instead of in the place of your ancestors. And Jacob would explain, my brother has vowed to kill me. And Jacob has grown. And Jacob looks at his family and goes, and he should. What I did was evil. What I did was wrong. Jacob will kill me if we go home. Then the Lord speaks to him and says, go back to the land of your fathers and your relatives. I'll be with you. When he tells this to this family, his family is scared to death. This is dangerous. They know the story. Esau is a warrior. Esau is strong. Esau has an army around him and he hates his brother and has vowed to kill him. So when they get close to home, Jacob does something that you're gonna hate. It's just the way it was. He takes the two maidservants and their kids and puts them up front. He takes Leah and her kids and puts them third. He takes his favorite wife and his children, Joseph and Benjamin, and puts them in the very back. Actually, only Joseph is alive at this time. Puts them in the very back. That way they're the safest, right? And they begin to approach this brother. It says, Jacob looks up, and there was Esau with 400 men coming at him. This was it. Jacob goes before his brother. It says he bows down seven times. This is it. But Esau does something incredible. He runs to Jacob. He embraces him. He throws his arms around his neck. He kisses them. And they weep together. He looks out at all of the herds and all of the possessions and all of the children. He says, who are these? And one by one, Jacob's sons come and are introduced to their uncle, Esau. And so they live this life knowing that Esau showed mercy to their father. And the reason they're alive today and the reason they're blessed is because Esau showed mercy. So we move ahead 30 years. Joseph had his brothers bowed before him. The legacy that his uncle left him instead of vengeance was one of mercy So he looked at his brothers and they recognized him. And he wrapped his arms around them. And he forgave them. And he fed them and he took care of them. And they brought the 70 into Egypt and they put them in the choice lands where they exploded in population to become a problem to the Egyptians in the generations to come. But Joseph had a legacy. And so the question for us in the room is what is our legacy? What are we leaving To our children, our grandchildren? What are we leaving to our nieces, to our nephews? What in our life are they seeing that you're going to carry? They're going to carry with them because your actions speak louder than your words and they also reverberate through the generations to come. And so I want you to ask the question what is your pattern? Have you laid the groundwork to show them mercy, compassion, grace, love? What are you doing? In Philippians 2 it says, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. consider others better than yourself. Each one should not look only to their own interest, but to the interest of others. A legacy is something you're going to leave behind. And while I'm not going to leave financial wealth to my children and especially my grandchildren. I can leave a legacy of faith, a legacy of mercy, a legacy of love, and so the question is, what are you leaving? If today was a funeral, what do you want people to stand and say about you? He built a good business. He worked a lot of hours. She really kept a clean house. What do you want him to say about you? <clears throat> was a great golfer. What do you want him to say? In this church, I've seen a lot of legacy left behind. I've seen a lot of people, not just family. They've left legacies behind for the people that have been associated, the relationships they've been in. One is is our own uh, children's minister, Melissa, sitting here in the front row today. 30 years ago, Melissa came into this church to work in a daycare, but what she brought was a legacy of love for children And she loved those children each and every day. She hugged them and knew their name and poured into them and showed an example of faithfulness, an example of love, an example of mercy. And today, 30 years later, she's now taking care of the children of those children that she loved so long ago. She's leaving a legacy. So how do you live a legacy that will impact future generations? It's not about how much money you make. It's not about how big your house is or how nice your cars are. It's about leaving a legacy worth leaving and you start that by first loving God. When I say love God, it's more than know God. It's more than believe in God. It's more than show up for church occasionally. It's truly love God. The Bible tells us to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, With all of our strength, we are to love God. And when we love God in that way, that's a legacy that we can leave behind. So the question is, do you love God? Have you surrendered to God? Have you given him 100%? Have you fallen on your knees and said, Father, forgive me and live a life now that represents loving him with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength? Because when you do that, You're capable of loving other people. It says to love other people like you love yourself. So do your kids, your grandkids, see love in your heart when you see people who are different from you. People different color. People different religion. Different ideas, different thoughts. Do they see a genuine love for others or do they see judgment and criticism and anger and righteous indignation? Because when we love God with all of our heart, we can love others even though they may be different than we are. When you love others and love God, you leave a legacy behind that says do nothing out of vain conceit but consider others greater than yourselves. Live a life of love. That's the legacy we want to leave behind, that'll shape the generations to come. I pray that you'll begin to leave a legacy today. Would you bow? Father God, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, the mistakes that we've made, we know you can erase. We know that you forgive. And we know, God, if we begin today by loving you and loving others, we can change the course of our families we can change the lives of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Help us to truly live out a legacy worthy of your calling. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. Our hope is that this message inspires you to encounter Jesus and find a better way to do life. We'd love to hear from you and get you connected on your journey. Visit theavenuechurch.com slash connect to get started. To hear the latest from us, don't forget to subscribe. See you soon.